Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Aussies only. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group. Leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. Well, on Aussies only now, we're going to jump in and have a chat to Matt Chalopo, who's been covering the game for a very long time, and you'll be familiar with his work across the AO channels. And obviously, uh, it is a very busy time of year, so we appreciate him jumping on between the French Open and Wimbledon, depending on when you are listening to this podcast. But Matt, thanks very much for giving us some time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Darren, and, and good to see you again. I've worked alongside you quite closely for the last couple of years, so it's nice to nice to do this in podcast format. For That's right. Great. Yeah, sharing a desk in the uh, in the AO dungeons as late as two or three <laughs> o'clock in the morning sometimes. But um, yeah, they're all, they're all terrific memories. But it, it does feel at this time of year like it's one giant slam where you take a couple of weeks off, but it's um you know you just roll to a different part of Europe. But how how have you gone over the years managing this? The, the overnight slams, if you will, the French rolling straight into Wimbledon. Yeah, it's been um, it's been something. It's been an adjustment over the years because of changes. So there used to only be two weeks between the tournaments. I think up until twenty fifteen was it or twenty sixteen when something they changed like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, that actually back in the days when I travelled more regularly as a freelancer, you'd stay on after the French Open, and you know, a week later it was Wimbledon quality. So it was actually quite a quite an easy thing to do, head across on the Eurostar, um, and it all just became one hit. When they changed it and made it three weeks, um, you know, that was trickier and you kind of had to navigate that a bit. You did get that nice week of rest, actually. Like, there was always a a nice week of downtime after Roland Garros. Um, I'm lucky to have some family over in Europe, um, so I could, you know, go and stay with them and get a bit of a holiday. But then, yeah, it was straight straight into Wimbledon. You'd head to London, Qualies. Qualies was always a big time because the Aussies traditionally have done so well there. So that was always a really busy week. And then, and then Wimbledon. So yeah, it kind of almost feels like a two month block because they're close together. I think anyone that works in tennis media um, feels that it is a big chunk because you have to keep your eye on the grass court lead up tournaments, which start a day after Roland Garros finishes. So there is a really quick turnaround. And since the pandemic, obviously I, and I'm not a freelancer anymore. I work full-time at Tennis Australia. I, I don't travel as much anymore. Um, so doing them remotely is not actually a problem at all because I would have been up at all hours of the night <laughs> watching it anyway as a fan, like you probably were. Um, but, yeah, that, you know, that just means you kind of just adjust your body clock. You start later, you finish later kind of thing, and and you just go. And the coverage on Nine and Stan was fantastic. You can watch You can watch everything. And then if you stay plugged into to Twitter and all of the the notes and everything else that's going on. And, and I listen to heaps of podcasts. Um, yeah, you do kind of feel like you're amongst it, even if you're not physically there. So, yeah, it's just been a natural shift over the years. But um, it's always a really I – love, I love this time of year. We, we all do. If you work in tennis, this is kind of peak busyness and there's always, there's always so much that happens here. It is, it is actually really good fun. 
Yeah, Christmas for the the tennis fan. Before we get into the yeah. the beginning of it, as as you mentioned, obviously the pandemic has changed travel in in nearly every sport. Obviously, the even the Olympics and things like that, everything's done a bit more remotely now. But for those that haven't done it, um, and I've been lucky enough to to go over there as well, is it the the romantic notion of European travel, or is it the head down a case of yes, I happen to be in London, or yes, I happen to be in Paris, but it's you know, nose to the wheel, so to speak, and, and working? Or, or do you get those moments to pinch yourself and say, I'm not just carrying, uh, covering this sport, but I'm in Europe and travelling and, and I can actually soak that in? Oh, for sure. You do get opportunities to do that. I think um, particularly before Roland Garros introduced its night sessions, both the French and Wimbledon play finished by about 9pm. So obviously you would continue working and there might be late matches to wrap up or you'd be focusing on the next day, but you usually were able to knock off at about, you know, sometimes 10. You could get, you could go and get a late dinner somewhere. There were places that were open and because the European summer is so, it's north and it's light, it stayed light. It stays light in London until after 10pm at that time of year. So you did feel like you got a little bit of time at the end of the day, um, whereas the other two slams, obviously... AO and, and the US have those night sessions and you, you probably wouldn't work the entire time. Otherwise it would be a 15 or 16 hour day, but you, yeah, it, it's just, it was just a different rhythm of the tournament and the way the kind of the climate and the conditions were there. You'd have, yeah, you'd have these long days. So there was, there was that ability during Wimbledon to maybe knock off and have a drink with some friends or colleagues after the tournament. And and then you also had that middle Sunday until a couple of, um uh, until this year, mm-hmm. which was, a great day to kind of just recharge, do what work you have to, kind of reset, get a good sleep, um, and go and go again. So yeah, in those times you'd be like, if it was a nice summery day in in London, you would get an opportunity to go. Oh my goodness, look where I am! This is incredible. Um, it didn't it didn't feel like work, but it is. Yeah, it's a very busy time, particularly the first week of a slam when there's so many kind of competing storylines, so many courts happening. Um, yeah, you do feel a little bit overwhelmed. The days fly. I'm not sure how you feel, Darren, but in a, in a yeah. slam, I cannot believe how quickly the mm-hmm. hours click over and how quickly it feels like you've been working for a long time, but then you're like, holy, you know, holy crap, we're day eight of the tournament already and it feels like it just started. But then at the same time, it feels like, oh, that first round match felt like two years ago. It, it is yeah. a weird kind of time warp. I think because you get so mindful and focused and in that kind of bubble, you know, eat, sleep, repeat kind of thing. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it is a bit of a balance, but yeah, definitely those, those European slams, you did get a bit of a chance to soak it in and, and it's wonderful. So early days, you mentioned you were freelancing. Can you take us through your, your journalistic progress that got you to where you are now? And did you always intend to tie that around tennis? Was it a case of, I love the game. I love this. I'm going to put them together. How did it come to, I guess, where it is now? I think, I think that's exactly right. It was probably always a dream to work in the tennis media, but it is quite niche, particularly when it's only in Australia for three or four weeks a year. Um, if you wanted to be a sports journalist, particularly in Melbourne, I remember. So I did a, I did a journalism degree. I went to RMIT. We did placements um, to get experience in our second and third years, and I remember doing a, um, a week placement in Sportal. And they said to me, what sport would you like to cover? And I said, uh, I, I love tennis. And they were like, oh, there's actually not really a lot of tennis to do at the moment in Melbourne. It's all about footy. Do you like footy? And I, I, I do. Um, and, you know, mad Richmond supporter. So <laughs> footy was no problem to cover. But that's kind of where the jobs were in Melbourne. Like footy is enormous here. Um, and, yeah, it kind of like the focus was a bit different. So, yeah, a lot of my kind of experience 
um, coming through uh, uni and building up kind of like a sports media CV was in um, was in footy. And I did a little bit of cricket as well, just kind of like local level reporting. Um, uh, like where I lived in Melbourne, I, I did uh, reporting for uh, the Box Hill Cricket Club in the local paper. I was kind of like their correspondent um, out in Whitehorse. And I did a season working for the Box Hill Hawks and I did sport also. I got, and I did a little bit of work for a, like um, the company that was running the AFL um, website and club websites at the time. Um, so yeah, I got heaps of, heaps of experience there, but then an opportunity just fell in my lap as soon as I graduated. So that was in 2007, Tennis Australia sent out an email to, um, journalism schools in Melbourne and they were seeking some interns to come and work and just get some experience working on the, um, AO website. And I applied for one of those positions and got it, which was Great. And they, and they liked my experience. They'd seen I'd worked at sport or they saw I had some sports experience and, and, um, Oh, one thing I did do in year 10, I did two weeks of work experience at Australian tennis magazine, um, under Viv Christie, who's still there now, <laughs> I worked at first day, which was amazing. So that was actually, yeah, something that I, I got kind of like a bit of grounding in how, how a magazine, um, is put together and, and writing for it. And they also had a website too. So I did get a little bit of exposure to tennis media and, just as a fan, I was just consuming so much of it. I subscribed to the magazine. Uh, I just read, I just drank everything in. I was obsessed with it. So certainly having the sports journalism skills, um, you know, plus, plus the knowledge, like I knew, I knew the game inside and out cause I just was obsessed with it. Um, yeah, I got one of the roles and worked at my first Australian open in 2008 and it was part of the web team. And I just thought it was the best thing I've ever done. I loved it. I had so much fun and I, um, would take summer holidays from my job. Uh, I was well, I graduated from uni. I got a job in health journalism, but I would take summer off my annual leave and I would work at the Australian Open. So that was that was how I got in, and I yeah, I thought it was awesome. In terms of your, so I'm similar in that with a journalistic background. I love my mm. numbers and statistics, and yeah. observing a lot of your tweets around slams are always fascinating and. You know, for example, uh, the tweet around, you know, Raducanu attempting to to back up a US Open title 24 majors later and obviously eager Sviontek defending the French and how rare that was in women's tennis. And then yes. uh, other other numbers that centre around, you know, serving percentages and, and all of those little statistical things that sort of stand out. Certainly for me, I love that. But mm-hmm. has that always been the case for, for you that you've been sort of statistically minded in, in combining that data with, with a lot of your work? I think so. Um, I've, yeah, I've always had a memory for that kind of stuff. It, it, it interests me and I and it sticks in my head, particularly if it's an interesting stat, I can always recall it. Um, I don't know if this is a good <laughs> grounding in it, but being a Richmond supporter growing up, we always seemed to have statistics that were like worst ever or biggest <laughs> loss. There were terrible things that happened yeah. like this growing up, a child of the 90s. Um, seeing Richmond get, you know, demoralised by 130 points. 130, mm. I'll, I can tell you, 137 points against Adelaide in 1997. I remember that. When Robert Walls got <laughs> sacked, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there were lots of things like that. And I don't know, I just naturally had, uh, naturally had a, 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 I guess, a fascination with it. And, yeah, an interesting stats always stuck with me. Um, and so that's trans- transferred over to tennis. Tennis is a really rich sport, I think, when it comes to numbers. There's so many ways. There are those stats that you talked about, like serving percentages, so things that happen in matches, but then there's also those kinds of 
like contextual stats, like who's on a winning streak or who's defended a Grand Slam title or who's got this. Um, so not in-match stats, but more like career stats. Mm. I think that kind of, actually that probably gets me going a bit more than even in-match stats. It's really cool to see, you know, unforced errors and, you know, um, uh, returns in play and, and uh, you know, serve speeds and things like that and, and how they fluctuate in a match. But, yeah, the stuff that gets me going is that kind of, I guess, more umbrella, broader, longer-term stuff. That women's tennis stat you referenced about it being, well, I think we're now, it was 25 or 26 majors since a woman had defended a major title. And the last one was Serena at Wimbledon in 2016 before Iga did it in Paris. That's like a record. That's an open era record. It's never been longer than that. And you kind of think, wow, that it just, it kind of reflects what's going on in the game, that time of transition and stuff like that's really interesting to just kind of go in and crunch and, you know, look up all those old stats and it, it, I, I don't know. I've always, I've always loved it. And there's lots of people in the kind of tennis Twitter space that seem to really like stats as well. I love seeing what other people produce. I love seeing the ATP media info. I love Optifacts. I love tennis abstract. All of that kind of stuff is, is great. And then with, it kind of almost gives you ideas. You see this and you think, Oh, then what about this? And then you go and look into that and it all kind of makes a nice, statistical ecosystem maybe <laughs> i always found in tennis and cricket in particular stats don't lie in football sometimes yeah. they can be misleading you could win the inside 50s by 25 and get beaten but in tennis yeah. yeah in tennis and cricket generally you can dominate statistics and and that's that you'll you'll win yes. but your, your eyes are lie. isn't that exactly isn't that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> spot on and and there are things within matches where, you know, your eyes tell you things and data can obviously back it up. For example, you, you tweeted that Novak Djokovic, 97 and 0 since the 2016 US Open after winning the first set. You'd watch it and think, look, if Djokovic gets a stranglehold on a match, he can't be beaten. And then that stat mm. obviously validates it. And his record in, I think, only Dominic team, as you said, had beaten him in a semifinal since 2014. Oh, uh, I think, and I actually didn't know yeah. that. I, I don't know how I stumbled across that, but mm. someone, maybe it was the tennis podcast said, oh, he hasn't, he's hardly ever lost a Grand Slam semifinal recently. And when you go and look at it, you're like, oh, wow, I, I didn't actually, I mean, mm. it makes sense when you think about it. You're like, oh, of course, he's won all those semis, but you didn't realise it was quite that dominant. So, yeah. It, and it, don't you also think, too, when you, you hear that stat about, um, his success when he wins mm. the first set at a in a best of five set match in a major that came up on the channel nine broadcast and um it means then you watch his matches with a different um <clears throat> perspective or a different appreciation because all of a sudden the first set in a five set match you can come to sometimes be like oh, i don't really even need to tune in until you know this could go for five hours if you miss the first set it doesn't it doesn't matter so much but it does matter in a Djokovic mm. match because the whole match hinges on it and you saw it in the Roland Garros final against Rude. Rude started so well, was up four one, but then it got to a tiebreak. And mm. like this kind of this tiebreak is make or break. If yeah. he doesn't win it, if Rude doesn't win it, the final's almost done, and that's what happened. So it kind of really does. Yeah, if you, if you're aware of that going in, and fans know that, it, it does kind of make it more more relevant or more exciting. I certainly think. Yeah, it, it certainly can validate opinions where do you sit on the i mean it's probably put to bed realistically but where do you sit on the on the big three argument has that been signed sealed and, and rubber stamped i guess what were we just saying about numbers don't lie i mean yeah yeah i mean <clears throat> no back like those yeah and, and both of us i'm not sure how you feel about it but yeah as a numbers geek i find Djokovic is really fascinating to report on because the numbers are so absurd and he's mm. just done things that yeah, like, I mean, Federer and Nadal have a brilliant set of numbers and probably the most impressive tennis stat 
is like Nadal's 14-0 record in a Roland Garros final and he's never been taken to five sets. Like, mm-hmm. that's just crazy. But there's things like Novak's kind of completeness and now it's also starting to veer into like the longevity records. Like he's the oldest Roland Garros champion, 15 years between first and last major, so showing no signs of slowing down. Won every himself, major three times, yeah. Won every major three yeah. times, putting himself in yet another position to win the calendar slam. Like who's done that even once, let alone um, if he's having another shot at it two years later at age 36. Like I know he hasn't done it yet, but he's mm. he's got a shot. Good chance, it. yeah. A good chance, particularly yeah. with his dominance at Wimbledon. Mm. And that's another thing too, kind of Wimbledon was Federer's domain, but Djokovic has now started to kind of catch up to him in his Wimbledon statistics. So you kind of always associate it, I think, the AO was Djokovic, the French was Nadal, Wimbledon was Federer, mm. um, and the US Open was a bit of a free-for-all. They kind mm. of, you know, more, um, mm. there was more of a spread of champions. But, um, yeah, Novak's kind of started to creep up to... Um, Federer and Wimbledon, and he's also beaten Rafa twice at the French Open, which no one's done. So it's kind of, he's almost, I think there's something about Djokovic that's kind of like encroaching on their territory, which you kind of associated with them. And I think that, um, yeah, that just makes him so impressive. And the degree of difficulty, he they were always number one and two when he was coming up. So he's he's had to play with them both at their peak, whereas, say, Federer and Nadal started before Djokovic wasn't wasn't a force yet. So, I mean, yeah, I, I love it. They're actually, I, one of the things too about the big three that I think I loved almost more than anything was when they all got on, they all equaled each other on 20 majors. Yeah. There was that beautiful period where it was so symmetrical. Where I don't think we'll ever see anything like like that. What's fascinating now is to see how long Djokovic can maintain this physical peak. He doesn't seem to be declining, which is crazy at age 36. So that will, you know, it could almost any any he's relying on his body to stay healthy, I think to a point, and that's going to be harder at this, at this age. So if he can, anything he achieves now is almost more impressive given at the stage of the career he's at. Who's next? I mean, Alcaraz is the obvious one, obviously cramped up at the French. Uh, he'll mature. Mm, that was and, a and shame, get, wasn't it? Yeah. And get physically better. Medvedev's always an interesting watch. Uh, he started this yeah. year again, pretty well. Given last year, he looked a, a little bit tortured at times off that Australian yeah. Open defeat, bowed out at the French, but that's not uncommon for him. How do you see that next path? I mean, they seem the two that on their day could conceivably beat Djokovic at a major and not many others could. I, I agree with you. Those names. Medvedev, Medvedev's done it against Djokovic yeah. at a slam. So that's, and I know Djokovic is playing with like the weight of history in that US yeah. Open final. Medvedev, Medvedev has done that, stepped up to the plate, beat him in straight sets in a major final. That That is... That's credibility right there. Yeah, I see. I, so I definitely think Medvedev. He he was flying at the start of the year. Got a win over Djokovic in Dubai. He's always pushed Djokovic tough, even when he doesn't beat him. It's always mm. close. So that is, um, yeah, he's definitely a rival to Djokovic, and probably mostly on hardcore slams. I think Medvedev probably should, in theory, do well at Wimbledon. It looks should, like his yeah. strokes should should do well on grass, but he plays so far back. So yeah, he. Yeah, but definitely the US Open, he would be a rival to Djokovic. And Alcaraz, to me, it was just like Alcaraz needed to get that meeting with Djokovic at a Grand Slam, out of the way and out of his system. It was built up. It was so big. There was so much hype. And it sounds like he carried a lot of that hype and nervous tension through the match because it was just so big. And you kind of think if he was to play him again, it couldn't possibly be that intense, right? Mm. Like, Mm. I've done this before. Okay, deep breaths. I've, I've met, you know, I've, I've experienced Djokovic deep at a major before. It can't get scarier than that because 
before the physical the physical problems came into play, he was matching him. It was a set all and he kind of taken, he'd gotten into the driver's seat in the match. It really would have been fascinating to see how that unfolded if Alcaraz hadn't have cracked, but he did. Yep. And that's, and that's a testament to Djokovic, his aura, his ability to manage himself and his body through a five-set match. Alcaraz is a really quick learner and is just so talented. I can't see him not pushing Djokovic if they met at a Grand Slam again. It just depends where it is. Like, because they're number one and two, it can only happen in a final, right? Mm. So, and a lot has to go right for them both to meet in the final. So they might not even play again for a while. I, I don't know. It took it was more than a year before they played last time. So, mm-hmm. but they, I agree with you. They're the, they're the two. Maybe Hogaruna. He's he, he, we haven't seen him play Djokovic at a. Oh, we have at a Slam, but that was very uh, very young. His two wins over Djokovic have come at Masters. So again, five sets brings in a completely different scenario, and Djokovic is so good at it. And maybe maybe a fully firing Yannick Sinner. He's yeah. got weapons. He's only getting better. He's brilliant. I mean, those those three or four could challenge Djokovic. Um, Zverev has historically pushed Djokovic. There's been a couple of five-setters at slams. If he gets healthy, maybe he could. But he's not back at the level he was before his injury. Yeah, there's a few. But I would think they're more of a chance on hard court at the US Open than they are on grass. I think Djokovic is almost – Djokovic is a bit without peer on grass yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I think that's about right. And, and obviously, you know, with, with Alcaraz, he, he only needs to look at Djokovic early in his career when similar things were happening where he'd cramp up a bit of majors in the heat and, and, and can learn a bit from that experience. And, yeah, it's always that battle between best of three and best of five. There's a few players mm-hmm. that have beat – I think I tweeted that in the last four years, I think 19 different players have beaten Djokovic in a best of three set match, but only Nadal and Medvedev have done it in best of five wow. in that time, yeah. which says a bit about that ability to go the distance and, and stay at the level, which sort of stands out a bit. Did you it's see a, his quote at Roland yeah. Garros when he said he he of something about like he know he knows the players get nervous or know about his ability in five sets and mm. he wants them to know that and to feel that. And so he's yeah. so aware of yeah. the the mental um, edge he holds in that format, that whole thing about you won the match before you even leave the locker room. Like that's mm. it's such a powerful thing that Djokovic has in his um in his pocket. And I think he's won when it goes five, he's won nine fifth sets in a row or something like that. So he, he gets oh, see, him I didn't know that. That's, he gets that, well, that's him at incredible. the end. Yeah. Yeah. He gets him yeah. at the end as well. Uh, in terms of your role at that at the moment, obviously you mentioned full time with with TA focusing a lot on the not just the Australians but the more global sort of thing. Can you take mm. us through your role and, and a little bit about the the podcast you're doing at the moment mm. as well? Yeah, so my obviously my my main thing is is writing for websites. Mm-hmm. So ozopen.com, the Australian Open website, I do a lot of a lot of features and coverage for that, particularly during the, well obviously mostly during January, but we do um, coverage throughout the year, particularly during the slams. Um, we have Australian Tennis Magazine. There's six issues of that per year. So I contribute to that. Aussie coverage for the Tennis Australia website. So there's lots of kind of editorial channels, but the main focus is at the moment um, the AO website. And then, yeah, we've um, the AO Show podcast is um, John Hoovenas, who you probably know is the host mm-hmm. and the executive producer that has been going for a couple of years now. But this year they have... Um, decided to make it a weekly format, not just, you know, it's daily during the Australian Open, but they've um, increased how often it gets released um, throughout the year. And John's currently away. So I am, <laughs> um, I'm stepping into his shoes. They're big shoes to fill. And he's been very good at, um, at helping helping me. But um, I'm, yeah, I'm the host for the next, I think it was five episodes. So I've done two, there's a couple more to go. And yeah, it's fantastic because we get um, guests on the podcast all the time, big names in Australian tennis, like 
Todd Woodbridge, Casey Delacqua, Nicole Pratt, Wally Masur, people like that to come and talk about, you know, and they, they're really key, keyed into tennis and um, often bro- uh, broadcasters themselves still. So it's really cool to chat with them and then also preview what's coming up. So the episode that um, dropped yesterday was a wrap-up of the French Open, but then it naturally, as we talked about before, you look forward to Wimbledon because, like, what's next and it's coming up so quick. So that, that's been really fun. And when we're lucky, we can um, sometimes connect with players who are overseas on the circuit and chat to them wherever they are in the world. So um, I was lucky enough to talk to Daria Saville, and that was actually in Melbourne just before she left to go and make her comeback on grass. So, yeah, that's been a really nice way to kind of, you know, cover the sport differently and connect with players in a different medium. It's, it's really, really good fun. I hope... Um, you know, like this podcast, people will listen to it. Absolutely. What, what's been your highlight in terms of matches or, or moments? Is there one that you remember most fondly thinking, I'm glad I was there for that. I'm glad I covered that. That's the one that, you know, almost epitomized the love of the game the most. Oh, that's a good question. I remember probably early one of my first AOs was when Yelena Dokic made her run in 2009. And that was that was so big and so emotional, particularly in Australia. She has a global profile, but that was such a big story here at home. And being in the stadium for some of those matches and the energy and how amazing it was to see what she was doing when her ranking, she shouldn't have had any business doing that, but it just showed how talented she was. And it was such a great comeback. That was a real highlight. There's been, I actually was in Wimbledon centre court when Federer lost to Sergei Stakowski, stunned, I think, in the second round. And I remember the person that I was sitting with was like, oh, is that is that the last time? Is that like is that the last time we'll have seen Roger? And because already at that point he like, was struggling with his back. And how old would Roger have been in 2013? Would he have 32, been 32? I think. 32? Yeah. Yeah. So back then, I mean, to retire mm. at around 32 or 33 wouldn't have been mm. uncommon. And it kind of looked like he was in decline. And we were kind of thinking, oh, I mean, maybe we were lucky enough to be in the stadium to see his last match, but it was a loss, and it was so surprising and. And yeah, everyone was stunned with that. Well, that turned out to be completely um, irrelevant. Like <laughs> he bounced back and was brilliant after that. So that at the time that felt really significant to be there seeing that, but it, it turned out to be a blip really. I also remember a match that I did, I had that moment that you said earlier in the podcast about where you realize where you are and you're so lucky to be where you are. I was in the stadium for, I think a set of the Sharapova Halep French Open final in 2014. And Simona, being Romanian, had unearthed this huge kind of Romanian contingent of supporters. And there were all of these Romanians in the stand waving flags and doing that Simona chant that they do. And it was a day in Paris like we've just had at the French Open. It was 30 degrees, blue sky, brilliant day. The match went for, what, three hours, 6-4 in the third. It was a really good final because Halep was inexperienced then. I think a lot of people thought Sharapova might win it quite comfortably and it turned out to be a really good final i remember thinking to myself then being there wow this is amazing that was my first time i'd gone to roland garros and for that to be the final that i got to see that was really cool so yeah there's been like you know things like that over the years oh and one thing that i was really lucky to do was i was at roland garros when ash barty won the front i was at the when she won the title that year but then i jumped on it because i was over there i was going to stay on for wimbledon and i jumped on a train and went to Birmingham hmm. to see her final, when if she'd won it, she would have been world number one. And so, yeah, I got a, a, an accreditation for a day at the Birmingham tournament, watched the final, and was there for Ash to become world number one. And I got, I got to chat to her afterwards briefly. So that was, that was really cool. Yeah, there's been lots of, lots of little snippets like that over the years. I'm sure I'm forgetting things, but they, they seem like quite significant ones. 
And just I've, I've been really, really lucky to see. Oh, and actually one other thing before I forget, the Vavrinka-Djokovic 2013 AO match, the fourth round that went to 12-10 in the fifth. That is one of the best matches I've ever seen. And it was so late at night. Like it went to like one or something or two in the morning. And I managed to get, um, because my accreditation gave me access to media areas, I got to go down to the radio booths behind the one-way glass at Rod Laver Arena to watch it at court level. So it's kind of this weird muffled sound because it's behind the glass. It's not, you're not in the stadium, but you're, you're basically at the eye level of the lines people when they're like crouching down, looking at the lines and you're kind of looking between them. And I watched, I think the last bit of the fifth set, unbelievable. That was incredible. I'll never forget that. Yeah, they've had some. It was a bit of bit of a kryptonite for Djokovic was Stan mm-hmm. over the over the journey. He could find a way in in big matches when when others couldn't. Obviously, had the weapons to to hurt him. A couple before we we let you go. Obviously, Ash at the Oz Open in twenty twenty one. I guess covering Ash and and what she's done for Australian tennis. Obviously, not many of us sorry the twenty twenty two Australian Open. Not many of us would have expected that that would mm-hmm. be her last ever match. And oh, by contrast, what a way covering, to go out, hey. exactly. And by contrast, covering Nick Kyrgios is obviously an interesting journey. Very different people. Very different players mm. but um how have you found uh i guess the, the journey with those two well yeah as you said very very different journeys um nix has been longer and more tumultuous i think the one thing that really impressed me about kyrgios was when he made the wimbledon final last year and then backed it up with the u.s open quarter final i there was like if you looked at his activity it had been like seven years since he'd made a major quarter final and then he made two in a row and he made mm. the wimbledon final it's this really cool kind of like when a lot of people i think thought oh you know you might have you know, not leveraged your talent or, uh, you know, you didn't achieve all of you, all what you could. He did. He made a slam final. That was really, that was really good. And playing, and he was, he was close. Like he was so close to going deeper at mm. the US Open as well. He only lost by yeah. a whisker to Ashinov in that quarterfinal. Like who knows what he could have done because that was quite an open US Open. Mm. So, yeah, certainly from that perspective. And I do remember Nick, uh, I'm not sure if I personally asked him many questions, but at the, that US Open, I just remember his press conferences were so candid and so open. And when he is in a good headspace, he does give a great interview. I remember finding those, those you know, uh, being in the room and also reading the transcripts, they were quite compelling. Like you'd be like, God, oh, get about five stories out of this. Like it was really, mm. it was really cool. The um, the part of his career he found himself in and, and kind of assessing it in retrospect, I thought that was really, that was really cool. Ash, obviously, yes, different kind of burn, burn hard and burn bright, but burn quickly. Like she achieved all of her success and incredible success in a really condensed, like what, two and a half, three year period. What I did love about Ash was just I think also what I like about covering Djokovic was the kind of the completeness of what she did. She had all of these tools. She could beat a variety of opponents. She was such a student of the game. I really liked watching her think her way through matches and winning slams on all surfaces and having great records against all of her rivals, I think. Yeah. And doing things that an Australian player hadn't done since like, you know, first since Yvonne, first since Margaret Court, first since Leighton Hewitt. Like there were things... Even Sam Stoza, like we hadn't had a major champion for 10 years, um, almost 10 years until until Ash won. So it was really cool kind of like the Ash's success evoked a whole lot of past greats of Australian tennis, which I thought was a really nice link back, particularly when she won Wimbledon, that incredibly poetic on the 50th anniversary of Yvonne wearing the dress that honoured her outfit in NAIDOC week. It was just, it was beautiful how perfectly that went. And then, yeah, the way she finished kind of going out on top, her last matches and is a Grand Slam trophy. Like it's the ultimate mic drop. I think Ash is brilliant. I also think we really miss her. 
Yeah, we do. There's so many matches I would love to have seen with some players like Sabalenka going to this next level and Sviantec going to this next level. God, I would have loved to have seen them battle Ash more often. I would have liked to have seen Ash play Osaka more often, but now they're both about to be mothers. There is a bit of a kind of like we were left wanting more with Ash, but it's, you know, she's really happy in her life and, and that's great for her. Yeah, the old, the old saying, better to be missed than dismissed, I guess, and she certainly is. <laughs> She certainly is missed. Uh, a, a final one, obviously, Djokovic is clear favourite at, at Wimbledon on the men's side. But mm. on the women's side, how do we see it? Obviously, it's the missing, I guess, the missing trophy, the grass court trophy in the slam cabinet for Iga. Can she do that? Mm. Sabalenka's power on that court. Obviously, Rybakina, the defending champion, who was unwell at the, the French. How are you you're seeing that? Mm. Well, we talked about this on our AO mm. podcast yesterday, whereas the French hand, it was really Eager was the favourite, Sabalenka or Rabakina, and there wasn't mm. really much conversation about anyone else. Whereas at Wimbledon, they feel like there's about eight or ten players that are a legitimate shot and that play quite well on grass. So you've got Mukova in the mix, Jabur in the mix. I'd be, I'm really... I think if everyone's playing their best, I think Rabakina or Sabalenka. It will be really interesting to see how Rabakina deals with the pressure of being a defending Grand Slam champion. We haven't seen that yet. Sabalenka, and the thing I'm interested with Sabalenka is how will she rebound from that missed opportunity at Roland Garros? She should have she should have won that semifinal. From 5-2 up in match point, she barely won a point. Grass is better for both of them. I, I'm not sure. Iga, I just don't think Iga's game is very well built for Grass. I think she can do better than what she's done, but I just think the way she moves and hits her forehand and the kind of matchups. I, I just don't think it's a very forgiving surface for her. She might learn. Yeah, I think if Rabakina, look, I'll, I'll, I'll make a pick. If Rabakina manages the pressure of being defending champion, I have faith that she will because I think she's quite a calm, collected, confident person. Plus, she's had some rest. I, I think she'll win. Very good yeah, shout. Yeah, and if Sabalenka Rabakina again, like what we got in the AF final, if you saw that big serving, big hitting on centre court at Wimbledon, I want to buy a ticket to that. I think that would be amazing. Who's your pick? <laughs> yeah, I think Sabalenka. I mean, as you say, the mental demons of overcoming what happened at the French. I think she's built to to win there. Mm. I always thought Mukova could go deep at a slam, and I'm glad she did that. And she had legitimate chances to win that that French Open, where she she could have broken for five four and yeah. would have made it's it really surprised. interesting. Yeah. So there, there's a few that I'd like to see do it, but I think Sabalenka is certainly built for the occasion. Matt, thank you uh, very much. Appreciate you giving us some time at a really busy period for tennis and. Look forward to uh, hopefully crossing paths again soon. This was great. Thanks for having me, Darren. Always good to chat with you. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win.